an image that's used in Tibetan Buddhism to represent the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion is a figure that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out, a thousand eyes to see all the suffering in the universe, in the world, in the universe, and a thousand arms reaching out to help. Some years ago, I attended a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. There were about 400 adults and also about 30 children there who were having their own retreat. Each morning, the children would come in to do a show-and-tell for us adults, sharing with us in some way what they'd been doing and what they'd been learning the day before. One morning they came in, and they came into the meditation tent and stood, all 30 of them, in a long line in front of the 400 adults. They silently faced us, and then they stretched out both their arms wide and their hands wide. In the palm of each hand of each child was painted an eye. Then one little boy went up on the platform where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's hands. And that was their presentation that morning. It was a very beautiful, very inspiring, very touching lesson for us 400 adults. Compassion. What is it experientially? About 35 years ago, a week after my two oldest sons were born, I say two because they were identical twins, I was holding one of them early one morning. He'd just woken up from sleep. And he was quite contented and relaxed in my arms that morning. An early morning sweetness and tenderness between us. As I held him, I looked very deeply into his face. And my heart began to tremble. It began to quiver. A kind of vibration permeating my heart and then through my whole chest and then permeating through my whole body. And then my mind. And there was a feeling of great and deep connection, a very profound intimacy in those moments with this new being in my arms. Intricately interwoven, within this experience in those moments was a sense of a deep knowing that this tiny being was going to experience a lot of difficult things in his life, difficult situations, many painful bodily and mental feelings within himself. Somehow in those moments of peace and love between us, 
there arose a very deep sense of knowing that he would experience great suffering at times as his life unfolded. And in those moments I felt no fear. There really wasn't any feeling of entrapment or any contraction away from this and no feeling of needing to control or needing to do anything in those moments. There was a feeling of great spaciousness, great spaciousness and connection, simply allowing this experience to be there, honoring it and honoring this being in my arms, in his life, however it and he would be over the years. There was a clear sense that morning that difficulty and sometimes great suffering that often accompanies it is within the unnatural, it was within the natural unfolding of life. That this is the way of things, this is the way of beings. And I'd never before felt and known so clearly and so deeply this in those moments of holding my tiny son. Some tears came that morning in those moments, but they were like the juice of the feeling of connection, the juice of the heart of compassion, not the aching tears of the kind of sadness that comes from the feeling of attachment. Although this experience happened quite a number of years ago, it was such a powerful experience for me of compassion that the memory of it has informed me. It's continued to be a teaching for me over and over again in many different circumstances and in relation to many different beings and certainly also in relation to my own life as it's unfolded over the years. Compassion, this trembling, quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering, ours or that of another being. This is really the heartbeat, we could say, the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. As it develops and matures, it's one of the two wings with which we fly free. Our freedom, our liberation from suffering is two-winged, we could say. The wing of wisdom, the cooling balance, the equanimity that comes with the understanding, the insight into the empty nature, the not-self nature of all things. And the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through the clear and deep knowing of the real cause of suffering and the way of its end. Without both these wings, free flight isn't possible. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, it's a place within us of great strength, 
we're able to be present with whatever's happening, even with the capacity of heart to see the helplessness in those that might be overwhelmed with difficulties, overwhelmed with suffering. We're able to accept that it is and are able to then offer help in whatever ways might be appropriate without any kind of aversion. True compassion is when we can open our heart to the suffering of all beings, ourself included, and not think that the pain of others is more important than our own pain or vice versa. So as we practice, we're cultivating what the Dalai Lama called immeasurable impartiality, a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. A symbol that I like a lot in relation to this is one moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in a hundred bowls of water. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just shines. The point is to not to want to benefit anyone or to make them happy. There's no audience involved, really. No me, no you, no them. It's a matter of an open gift, complete generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving. This is from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human, You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Probably needless to say, this isn't our relationship to suffering, to our suffering or another's suffering, all of the time. That's why we're here. That's one of the reasons that we practice. So let's take a look now at what compassion isn't. It isn't feeling sorry for. Pity is what's called in the classical teachings the near enemy of compassion. It looks like compassion. It might be thought of as compassion. Pitying ourself or pitying another when difficulty and suffering is being experienced or feeling sad or grieving for not having something that we've wished for or feeling the ache of missing something that either ourself or another no longer has, 
None of these experiences are true compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy. Mercy being a true, open-hearted presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion, a contraction away from, a kind of recoiling from. When we pity, there's a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, sense of wanting it to be different. There also may be the feeling that I'm really glad it's not me that's suffering so much. Pity tinged with a a kind of arrogance. This arrogance that's really a cover-up for our fear, our inability in that particular moment of being with the suffering that we're encountering. And each one of us knows that when we feel pity in ourself, for ourself, in these moments we're not really experiencing a caring or a kindness or a compassion for ourselves. But it's kind of a sticky, stuck, sinking, feeling sorry for ourselves, that poor me feeling. In this place, there's not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves, And so within the natural spaciousness and luminosity of mind, of heart, we practice acknowledging and coming closer to our experiences of body, of mind, of heart, letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept. For instance, the concept, the idea, the thought of pain. In our practice, we come so close as though touching our experience with awareness, touching our experience with mindful awareness. Seeing, knowing, touching a pain in the back. Fear in the heart seeing it clearly, just as it is, seeing its specific flavors, textures, its changing conditional nature, pulling out the thread of self with this clear seeing is a direct line to the natural development of compassion. It's befriending ourself in the midst of suffering rather than trying to push it away or hide from it or even to put up with it until it's over. This is from Carl Jung. What if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of offenders are all within me, and that I stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? What then? If a very dear, close friend comes to us with their troubles, usually we give them our attention. We give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling whatever it is they're feeling or to get away from us 
in the midst of their suffering. As we learn to befriend ourselves and understand our own suffering, our connection with all beings very naturally grows and develops. The pain in our back, in our heart, in its essence, isn't different than the pain in the back or the heart of any other being. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to what we could say bear witness and face whatever it is without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it, or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, to our own pain or to the pain of another, says, I can't stand this feeling. I can't stand to be near it. I can't stand to see it. For me, and for many people, I think one of the most amazing contemporary embodiments and inspirations of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life and her work, there's a short scene where she stops beside the bed of a man that had just been brought in from the street who's very, very emaciated and sick. She gets down right close to him next to the bed and looks directly into his eyes and then just very simply puts her hand on his chest over his heart. And in these moments, he's looking directly back into her face, into her eyes. And the appearance of enormous suffering in his face changes. It changes into light, into love. I think one of the most important things to remember in our practice with both Vipassana and the Karuna compassion practices, Sharon introduced it yesterday, is to remember to be honest with ourselves. Truly honoring, truly respecting our particular capacity of heart at any given point along the way of our practice. And not pretending anything to ourselves or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that we have of a compassionate person. And not sitting in our practice with expectation, waiting to have what we think is the right or perfect experience of compassion. It's important to know and to honor and respect our limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. About eight or nine years ago, my mother was at that time about 70 years old. She fell and hurt her leg very badly, cut the shin on the lower part of her leg, cut the leg down to the bone, the shin bone, and didn't take care of it at all. About a month after this happened, she came to New Mexico to visit Uh, my brother and myself, who were living near each other at the time. And her leg was very badly infected. 
we took her to the doctor and the doctor told her that if the leg wasn't cleaned out daily, she would have to go into the hospital to be taken care of and have it done there. Well, we didn't want her to go to the hospital. So I volunteered to take care of her. For about 10 days or so, every single day I had to clean out this wound on her leg, which was infected down to the bone. It was very painful for her. I went through many states of mind. (laughs) There were, the offering of it came from a pretty pure place of compassion, but along the way, there wasn't just compassion. I felt quite angry at her at times for not taking care of her leg. Actually, I was quite angry at her because she was feeling so much pain and I couldn't face it. And so I directed my anger, mad at her for getting me into this situation. At times I felt great tenderness, great love, and great connection for her. And pretty much all along the way, each day as we sat together through this process of cleaning the wound and her feeling a lot of pain each day in the midst of the process, she would tell me how grateful she was that I was doing this. Quite sincerely, tremendous gratitude and appreciation for the fact that this was being done and that she didn't have to go into the hospital. As I watched my mind states coming and going, I felt tremendous appreciation for the practice. I didn't get stuck very long at all in the rage, in the anger. But it came and it went and I was able to see it, feel it fully, let it pass, keep doing what needed to be done, open to the compassion, open to all of it, the range that was moving through, sadness also. Tremendous appreciation for this practice and the capacity that it brings to our heart, to our mind. In 1996, I taught in Poland for two months. During that period of time, I took a few days off during the American Thanksgiving at the end of November and went to Auschwitz. Tetsugen Roshi, Bernie Glassman, had organized a retreat he was calling a bear, he calls a bearing witness retreat. There were 140 people there from all over the world on this Thanksgiving weekend. One of the things that we did each evening during that Bearing Witness retreat, someone would read a short piece from a diary that was written by a woman named Eddie Hillisom. In the midst of the Second World War, Eddie, a 27-year-old Dutch Jewish woman, was living in a very large house with a group of people in Amsterdam. And then, in very bad health, was sent to the Westerbrook concentration camp, and then only briefly was alive in Auschwitz. 
these years of great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and paradoxically enough a time of personal liberation in the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe. Eddie wrote the counter scenario, we could say. Her diaries are an amazing account of our possibility of, as human beings in the midst of immense extreme suffering. I'd like to read just a short piece from her diary. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. And I am still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learnt. A lot of unimportant litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view so that something of God can enter you and something of love, too, not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point she wrote, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. And this is from the last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of all the days that are to come. And she ends her diary with, When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? We should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds, is her last line. The survivors from the camp have all confirmed that this young woman, Eddie Hillisom, was a luminous being to the very last. And this is from another teacher from quite a different venue. The Father's Day service this year at St. Edward's Catholic Church in West Baltimore was no greeting card homage to Dear Dad. St. Edward's, like many African-American congregations, calls this holiday Men's Day and uses it as an occasion to focus on the imperilment embedded in the daily lives of young men 
in the black community and to rally its men to the challenge. The men made their entrance in an exhilarating ceremony called the Procession of Warriors. Kiwisi Mafume spoke. You're not a man because you killed somebody, he said to a chorus of amens. You're a man because you know how to heal somebody. We must say, even from our experience, brother, you're not a man if you can make a baby. You're a man when you can learn how to raise a baby. That's when you become a man. Being honest with ourselves in this process of the growth, development, and maturing, maturing of compassion. Sometimes we might think that we're acting with unconditional love and, conf- and compassion when in fact we're acting out of fear of reprisal or fear of disapproval or fear of loss, or we're trying to avoid conflict. In the long run, and sometimes even very quickly, this actually only creates more suffering within ourselves and others. If we continue to perpetuate this behavior, we're creating and strengthening what in modern language is called codependency, which is a kind of unhealthy, dependent attachment between both beings who are involved. It may be that we have a strong inner sense of need, not feeling whole, not feeling ontologically okay, meaning not intuitively feeling a simple okayness about being here, about being alive in this life, just because we are here, just because we are alive in this life. Without this, we might have a kind of undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of inner lack, of a sense of abundance. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and abundance, this must be respected. Otherwise, giving and caring is often done with a subtle sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the conditioned feelings of lack, of not-enoughness. There may be a misunderstanding with this in relation to the truth of compassionate generosity. In this misunderstanding, our actions may create and strengthen the unhealthy attachment of codependency within ourselves and others. It's as though we give ourselves away, or we lose ourselves in an unhealthy way, in the seeming support, actually the unskillful support of others. And most always, we feel even less whole and more depleted. 
also in this unskillful and seeming help to others, we might be ignoring or we're not even aware of the real suffering, the real needs of others and ourselves. In relation to this on a larger scale, Thomas Merton wrote about what, what Chogyam Trungpa many years later called idiot compassion. Thomas Merton said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. So it's quite important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of deep and true compassionate generosity grows and matures gradually. And also to know and to remember that our limits keep changing, moving out, expanding throughout our practice, throughout our life. It's our inalienable right to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel ontologically okay being here, alive on this planet, simply because we are alive on this planet, just like a tree, or a bear, or a butterfly, or grass. I think that this is one of the reasons that we're drawn to spiritual practice. It's a perfectly natural inclination. All of the relationships in our life, family, friends, work relationships, community life, even in a silent retreat such as this, it's all a wonderful mirror for the development and practice of compassion. Relationship with all of its likes and dislikes, its joys and irritations, annoyances and delights, frustrations and satisfactions. All that we experience in sharing life with others is the perfect ground for our practice, the perfect ground for waking up into our true nature, our Buddha nature, waking up into the clarity 
and spaciousness of wisdom, waking up into the heart of compassion. Our precious human existence, with all of the blessings and conditions that came together, came into place in order to make it possible for us to come here to practice. This human realm, it's the perfect ground for the development of wisdom and compassion because of its particular mixture of pain and pleasure. In the lower realms of existence, the intensity of suffering is too great for most beings to develop the wholesome qualities of mind that draw us to practice. In the higher realms of existence, it's said that everything is so blissful, constant, ongoing pleasure, that there's very little inspiration to practice. It's said that most of these beings don't remember in their bliss that it too will come to an end. So here in our human realm, the best conditions for the practice of liberation There's a wonderful story that illustrates this about the spiritual community in France that was um, guided by Gurdjieff, the philosopher and teacher Gurdjieff. It's a spiritual community of people who studied and practiced with Gurdjieff. And in that community, there was an old man who lived there, He was a very irascible old fellow. He was very messy, very argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't help. He didn't get along with anybody, and nobody got along with him. He didn't like people, and probably most people didn't like him. He tried for a long time to stay in the community. But it was very difficult for him, as well as difficult for the others there, to have him around. It was so difficult for him that he finally just decided to leave. He couldn't stand it anymore. So he went to Paris. Gurji followed him to Paris and tried to convince him to come back to the community. But the man said he wouldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. So Gurjeev offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community. He was a very poor man, and so he couldn't refuse the stipend, and he came back. Well, when he returned, everyone there was just aghast. (laughs) And they were even more aghast when they found out that Gurdjieff had paid him to be there, because all the rest of them had to pay themselves to be there. So, a lot of complaining, a lot of upset. Gurdjieff called a meeting, and he listened to everyone's complaints. And then he just laughed, and he said, This man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, compassion. That's why you pay me, and I pay him.
all of these strong energies that move through us, our body, our mind, our heart, they're all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for our liberation, yeast for our freedom. They're some of the ingredients, part of the mix, we could say, for developing wisdom and compassion in our practice, in our life. Another little story in a somewhat lighter vein that I hope hasn't already been told on the first half of the retreat. <laughs> story about Ryokan, the uh, Japanese monk who lived up in the mountains. He spent much of his time wandering around in the mountains, playing with children. And it's said that on a nice, clear, sunny day, he would take the fleas that lived in his robes, he would take them out of his robes and put them on a rock so that they could get some fresh air and some sunshine, dry out a little bit, have a few fresh breaths. And then at the end of the day, he'd put them back in his robes where they lived. Beings living with beings, the compassionate heart. Over time, our meditation practice develops a very expansive and deep tenderness of heart, of mind which truly transforms the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to others. We see and encounter suffering in ourselves and others. We recognize it. We come to understand it. And our capacity to be with suffering without aversion grows and matures. Our ability to act appropriately and more spontaneously in relation to suffering begins to be our experience more and more often. The two wings of freedom, the wing of wisdom, the coolness and ease of being with the equanimity of heart and mind that comes through the clarity of insight into the emptiness of all things, and the wing of deep compassion that comes through clear and deep knowing of the real cause of suffering and the way of its end. With these two wings, we fly free in the perfectly natural clarity, spaciousness, and luminosity of heart, of mind, the truth of our nature, our true nature. I'd like to share a piece with you that was written by a friend and student of mine from Taos, New Mexico, where I I live. He 
died a little bit less than two years ago of AIDS-related complications. This is a piece that he, he was a writer, and this is a piece that he wrote not too long before he died. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat, trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. The retreat schedule looks daunting. From 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m., nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day and am reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can and rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dharma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, Questions during Dharma talks increase in intensity. Is metta and karuna better than vipassana? In practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go to? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us, cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is my cycle. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the gift that has taught me about impermanence. And Vipassana is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. On the last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center. My heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not held onto.
just for a moment. I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh called Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile learning to sing in my new nest to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone i still arrive in order to laugh and to cry in order to fear and to hope the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive i'm the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river and i'm the bird which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the mayfly i'm the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and i'm also the grass snake who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog i'm the child in uganda all skin and bones my legs as thin as bamboo sticks and i'm the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes the flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears so full it fills up the four oceans please call me by my true names so i can hear all my cries and my laughs at once so i can see that my joy and pain are but one please call me by my true names so i can wake up so the door of my heart can be left open the door of compassion sit together for just a few moments Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.